I'm Dr. Sarah Hales Britton. I'm Spartacus. <laughs> and welcome to Greased Lightning, a podcast where we talk about myth and history and the movies and see what we can learn. Um, Sam, I, I have to confess that I'm also Spartacus. We're all Spartacus here. We are. <laughs> um, except, so uh, just as a, as a quick peek into uh, my watch, um, I, uh, I spent some time on the treadmill while I watched this movie just to sort of, it's, th- it's three and hours and 17 minutes, so I yeah. needed to move. Um, and we got to the scene where everyone is proclaiming that they are, in fact, Spartacus. And so uh, I raised my hand and I said, I'm Spartacus. And then uh, I turned to my wife, who was in the room, and I said, it's your turn. And she said, no. <laughs> and then I I turned to one of the cats that was in the room and I said, how about you? Nothing. So uh, not a lot of Spartacus loyalty in that room. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, really just me. <laughs> Well, I'm sure Spartacus appreciated your decision. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, since we're talking about it, what is your relationship with Spartacus, which I assume is not a myth? Not a myth. This is a real historical dude. Um, I honestly, I didn't know more than just the sort of um, what's out there in the general sort of common knowledge bucket about Spartacus, which is that he mm-hmm. led a, a slave revolt and it was unsuccessful. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so this was a, this was a real learning opportunity for me doing this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the movie Spartacus, it's been on my list for a very long time, uh, because mm-hmm. I, I like old Hollywood movies. Um, but, and, and this cast is amazing, but the length of this movie has sort of prohibited me from mm-hmm. actually biting the bullet and sitting down to watch it until now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny how there will be movies that you really want to watch, but you look at the runtime and you go, no, not until there is a proverbial gun to my head. <laughs> and this was it. Yeah, this was that gun. It was. Um, yeah. So thank you so for providing I, me with the incentive to finally watch this thing. <laughs> I thank you for putting the gun to my head. Because uh, it's like it's a movie that I was like vaguely aware of. But again, it's not something I would have watched because, again, three hours and 17 minutes is is your day, basically. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a lot. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get to the movie part. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. I have I have some uh, some mixed feelings on this one. I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What about what about you, Sam? What did you know about Spartacus before this? Oh, I've already covered it. My knowledge of Spartacus uh, begins and ends with "I'm Spartacus." Okay. That that's it. Excellent. Excellent. Um. Well, everybody learns things t- this week. Then. Uh, Fantastic. On Grease Lightning. Um. So. We know from, uh, well, now we know from the beginning of this movie that Spartacus was a gladiator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we've already done an episode on gladiators in the Roman world. So if you want to know right. about gladiators, go back to season one, listen to our episode on gladiator where we cover that whole world. Um, I'm going to assume 
that everybody knows things about gladiators. And we're today we're going to talk about Spartacus and the uprising that he led, which is called the Third Servile War. Um, and we're going to talk about the institution of Roman slavery in general. Okay. Uh, so first, our, our sources for Spartacus. Um, the Roman historians love this because it's a war, because it's in this, this very um, tumultuous period of Roman history where mm-hmm. we're in the sort of death throes of the Republic and we are rapidly speeding toward Julius Caesar, more civil war, and Augustus as the first emperor of Rome. Um, gotcha. And so those those things are only a few decades away at this point. So it's it's a period of Roman history that is well covered by Roman historians. Um, so this guy Appian, who is a second century historian, um, refers uh, talks about the civil wars and and includes the Third Servile War in those sections of his history. Um, there's a guy named Florus who wrote. A summary of Livy's history, which you'll recall was like 140 some books, Floris manages to compress 700 years worth of war into just two books in this summary. Okay. So very abbreviated, um, but he mm-hmm. covers Spartacus in that okay. um, in that summary. Plutarch uh, has a life of Crassus, who is the uh, Roman general who finally puts down the uprising. Uh, mm-hmm. And so Spartacus is covered in his life of Crassus. And then uh, Sallust, who is actually a contemporary. Um, he's a first century BCE historian. Uh, okay. And he would have been a child when Spartacus's revolt happened. Um, and he gotcha. wrote several works of history. Um, unfortunately, the one that's really, really fragmentary that we don't have very much of is the one where he covers the Third Servile War. <laughs> of course. Of course. So we just have a few little fragments of that. Um, and it it would have been really useful for historians if we had more of that work. Um, but it would have been horrible for me personally, because uh, Sallust is horrible to read in Latin. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. He's useful, but his Latin just makes me want to gouge my eyes out. Uh, so I'm glad I didn't have to read more Sallust than I was, like, was already forced real, to. <laughs> is he real dull? He's dull. He's also just like grammatically more difficult and complicated than he needs to be. Mm, this is gotcha. a, a thing that historians like to do. And I think it all starts with Thucydides. Thucydides writes very compact Greek. No extra mm-hmm. words than what you absolutely need to grammatically get your point across for the most part. And then mm-hmm. the some of the Roman historians take that philosophy into their Latin and just sort of intensify it. So Tacitus is also grammatically a little bit difficult sometimes. Even Livy occasionally is difficult. Sallust is like all these guys on crack. Um, it's not fun. Okay, So it's like... What I'm hearing is it's sort. It sounds sort of like a mix of like Russian and German, where I know Russian has uh, no form of to be mm. and uh, no articles, and so it sounds like you're pairing that with the German of sometimes you just get a jumble of verbs at the end of a sentence. Yeah, and yeah. You just got work it out. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it's terrible. So it's like, is it like 
Spartacus Crassus horse riding murder death. Something like that. Jesus yeah. Christ. It's not good. No, that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those are our sources. Um, but before we, we dive into Spartacus, I want to talk a little bit about Roman slavery in general. Um, okay. We've talked a little bit about uh, slavery before on the podcast, but never mm-hmm. like never gotten super in-depth with it. Um, there are many different ways that you can become enslaved in the ancient world. Uh, you mm-hmm. can be born into it. You can be captured or defeated in war. Uh, you can also sell yourself into contractual slavery to um, get out of some other kind of impoverished situation. Um, these are all legal pathways to enslavement. Um, in terms of illegally becoming enslaved, the main one is being kidnapped by pirates. And then if nobody hmm. pays your ransom, they'll just traffic you uh, and sell you somewhere else. Gotcha. Um, enslaved people had in the Roman world had no legal personhood so Mm -hmm. no no rights as human beings they were recognized as being people but they had no rights they were property they could be subjected to all types of physical indignity violence assault um it was a common practice in the legal world if you needed a slave to give testimony in a trial the slave would be tortured when given Mm. their testimony and Romans knew that testimony given under torture was unreliable, but they still Mm -hmm. did it because the idea was that a good slave would be so loyal to their master that they would lie under oath. If you just put them on the stand, like a regular free person. So that's, that was a thing. Yeah. Deeply messed up. And also really wrong. Yeah. Just I gotta a, tell you. Yeah, morally wrong and also stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, no one... No one who's owned by another person is gonna be like, no, that's my guy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's just... It's a little ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, the... The institution of slavery was, as far as we can tell basically never questioned in antiquity. It was a fact of life. Abolitionist ideas pretty much didn't exist. The moral discourse around slavery in antiquity was exclusively concerned with how slaves should be treated. Uh, Mm, And so like how, you know, how well do you feed and clothe and house them? Um, Do Mm -hmm. you educate them or not? And to what extent that kind of thing? Um, and, and what sort of punishments are, are meted out. Um, but the institution of slavery never questioned. Um, every level of society and every religion in antiquity practiced slavery. Um, it was, gotcha. it was universal. Uh, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of folks today think because of the passages in the, um, in the New Testament that talk about there is, um, there's no slave or free, all are equal in Christ or whatever. Um, they think that Christians didn't practice slavery, but they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in addition to uh, people of other religions. Fitz, can you get out? Out you go. Fitz wants to learn about Roman slavery today. Out you go. Bob. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> 
It's just riveting. Uh, so, um, so yeah, everybody did it. Um, around the, the end of the Republic, beginning of the Imperial period. So, um, end of BCE, beginning of CE time period, mm-hmm. um, about in the, in the Roman territory, about a quarter of the population were enslaved. Jeez, um, fuck. Yeah. Uh, there was a big boom in the number of slaves in Roman society after the the Punic Wars against Carthage, um, mm-hmm. that was like in the in the third century BCE. Because for for a long time, uh, captives from war or defeated people were like the biggest source of um, enslaved people for mm-hmm. the Romans. So huge boom in the number of slaves in Rome after those wars. Um, and then it just sort of continued from there. Gotcha. Um, in terms of gaining freedom, uh, I think because of the Atlantic slave trade in, in the modern world and the way uh, enslavement worked in the U.S., we tend to think of freedom as this like extremely rare thing mm-hmm. and something that was very difficult to attain. And like you almost it was almost never given. You had to take it for yourself. Right. You had to escape. Um, mm-hmm. It it was a lot. It, w- it didn't work like that in antiquity. And it was um, not as common as we might hope, but it was significantly more common to be freed by your um, enslaver in antiquity. Um, gotcha. There were lots of legal pathways. Um, so um, a f- the freeing of a slave is called manumission. Mm-hmm. For for um, rural slaves or people who were like basically used as chattel slaves, um, man- manual labor, um, unskilled labor, for folks like that, it was very rare to be freed. But for... Mm-hmm. Um, Slaves that were more educated or had some sort of like marketable skill um, or a profitable skill set, those folks were much more likely to be freed. And it, it was somewhat attainable for, for a lot of them. Um, so urban, urban enslaved people were generally better off. Um, there were limits on how many of your slaves you could free, though. Um, oh. Legally, you're not allowed to free everyone that you own, at least not all at once. Um, there are sort of, depending on how many slaves you own, you, there's like percentages that you are allowed to mm-hmm. free at one time. Um, gotcha. but when a, when a person was manumitted, they were also granted Roman citizenship. And oh. a lot of slaves came from outside of the Italian peninsula. I mean, people like a, Italian born people could also be enslaved in Italy, but since mm-hmm. so many of them came from outside the Italian peninsula, then they were freed, gained citizenship. That meant the Roman citizenry ended up being extremely diverse, even within Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that sort of left a really interesting mark on Roman society. Um, now, poor working class and freed people and enslaved people all did similar kinds of work. And mm-hmm. because of the way the the relationships between patrons and clients worked in Roman society, it was not uncommon for a person to be freed, granted their citizenship, they can get married now, they can control their own money. But 
otherwise their life looks basically the same because they're still working with the person who had enslaved them um, and who had legally owned them. It's just a, a different, slightly different kind of relationship now. Yeah. Awkward. Yeah. Very. But mm-hmm. this, I think this is part of why for so many freed people in Rome, they put a whole lot of stock in the citizen status of their children Mm-hmm. And your your child being born free or freed when they're very, very young with you uh, is an indication of the direction your family is heading, right? The next generation is the one with some chance of upward mobility, more than mm-hmm. you yourself who's been freed as an adult. And gotcha. so we see this a lot on funerary monuments um, of freedmen and freed women. They'll have uh, a depiction of their child on their funerary monument with uh the special um like like wearing this special um token that free roman boys wore as an indication of like yeah you can see from my name and the way my name is listed on here that i um that i'm a libertus or a liberta a freedman but my child is born free and so they don't have libertus attached to their name right they're just a regular Mm -hmm. old roman citizen and they are going to elevate our family. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so kind of one of the things I was asking is if there was this, like, kind of concept of, like, upward mobility or classes were fairly stagnant. But it's sounding like yes. Yes, to an extent, yeah. Um, there, there was a pretty wide gap between the rich and the poor in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but within those classes, there was some mobility. Um, jumping from one class to another was uh, extremely difficult. But you can go from being a freed, like a, a pretty, pretty broke, pretty poor freedman to being a relatively well-off working class person within a couple of generations. Um, oh, okay. Even, you know, there are occasional massive success stories, too. Like, the poet Horace, who's part of the Emperor Augustus's entourage, Horace's father was a freedman. So he was enslaved at some point and then freed. And Horace has some poems where he's sort of clapping back at people who look down on him because he's the son of a freedman. Hmm. Uh, which is really interesting. Okay. And he's, yeah, yeah he's, he's part of Augustus's retinue. Like he's one of the most well-known, successful, honored poets in Rome. So oh, that's awesome. It was possible. Yeah. And because also because uh, enslavement was sort of an economic situation, um, more than something that was sort of like personally branded onto you. Um, mm-hmm. It, people moved the the you there was clear knowledge that you could move in and out of enslavement and citizen status sort of at any time like if things go wrong for you you could end up enslaved mm-hmm. and then if things go right for you after that you'll be back on your feet and you'll be a citizen again um there was so much fluidity in the institution that mm-hmm. um and, and and slavery was so common all over the roman world that um it's possible that most citizens had slaves somewhere within their family tree by like second century CE. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just so incredibly common. Um, 
and yeah, not not as common as we would have liked it to be, but significantly easier to be freed, to be manumitted than in um, in the way uh, modern slavery worked in the Western world. Um, There there was a slave trade around the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. It didn't always work like the way we think of the Atlantic slave trade of the 1600s, the Middle Passage, all of that, because that was Mm -hmm. pretty explicitly um, race based, color based. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's white people raiding Africa, kidnapping one kind of people, trafficking Mm -hmm. them, selling them to another kind of people. Right. The slave trade in the Mediterranean um, was there, you know, there were ethnic stereotypes of course <laughs> in antiquity mm-hmm. um and sort of ideas about superiority and inferiority but um slavery was not ethnicity based at all it was it was economic and and you know war based <laughs> oftentimes mm-hmm. um so the slave trade around the mediterranean would have been mostly selling like captives from war or defeated people from war or people mm-hmm. who were otherwise already enslaved somehow um but we do know that for a period of time, the Greek island of Delos was designated at a f- as a free port, meaning no customs tax on whatever mm-hmm. goods you buy and sell in that port, including enslaved people. So oh. pirates and unscrupulous uh, slave traders took advantage of this um, because this was a no questions asked kind of port kidnap Mm -hmm. and sell a ton of people into slavery on Delos because they knew nobody would be looking into the legality of the enslavement of these people. So there was still some of that kidnapping and trafficking for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, It just wasn't the, the main avenue of the slave trade in antiquity, the way it was in the modern world. Okay. Yeah. So that's ancient slavery. Okay, and so you said it wasn't really questioned. Was it? Was it really just seen as like a necessary evil, or just like this is what we do and that's fine? Um, a little bit of both. It wasn't the institution that was the problem. It was me personally being enslaved, or this mm-hmm. particular slave being mistreated. That was the problem. Mm-hmm. It was any any sort of evils identified with slavery were very individualistic. And okay. the, the system itself was not questioned. It, it wasn't because, I mean, oftentimes freed people would turn around and own slaves themselves. So oh, the yeah. institution wasn't the problem. It was, I don't want to be a slave, <laughs> right? I'm going to free gotcha. myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that I can be on top in this system. Um, and never mind that we've got some sort of systemic issue going on here. <laughs> now that feels very American. Mm-hmm. Just like, let's think only on an individual level. Yeah. And not so much as like a, a system or, or think of the public. Definitely. Definitely. And that's part of why Spartacus's revolt, uh, is a little bit surprising or, mm-hmm. or um, a little bit confounding to historians because there's no indication in, in the ancient sources that despite all the people Spartacus freed, 
there's no indication that he was interested in bringing down the institution of slavery. It seems like he was interested in freedom for himself and the people that he like worked with, um, his Mm -hmm. friends, his family. Uh, And he was interested in sort of getting back at the class of enslavers and owners Mm -hmm. and such um, and the upper classes of Rome, but not not getting back at them in the sense of like changing their entire way of life, just in the sense of like sort of freeing their slaves by force and stealing their stuff. Okay. And and we kind of get that in the movie where it's seen as kind of more of like a means to an end mm-hmm. rather than this like symbolic kind of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about Spartacus. Um, okay. He was a Thracian gladiator. Um, his uprising is so large that it's it gets the name of a war. It's called the Third Servile War. So there were three mm-hmm. really big slave revolts um, in antiquity. This is the last and the biggest, the most well-known. Takes place gotcha. from 73 to 71 BCE. Okay. So this is a very chaotic period in Roman history. As we mentioned earlier, we're kind of in the death throes of the Republic. The Republic has Mm -hmm. been in place as the political system of Rome for like 450 years. But we've had civil war. We've had demagoguery. Um, These things are causing chaos in the Roman homeland, not just in the provinces, um, but Mm -hmm. at home in Italy. Um, And we are only about 25 years from Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. And starting gotcha. his big civil war against Pompey. So, now, yeah. Obviously not for me, um, but for our listeners. Uh, and again, really not for me. Um, what is demagoguery? Um, this is like a gross populist leaders who um, instead of like help wanting to help the people elevate the Mm -hmm. people do things like just sort of stir shit up stir yes trump yes okay stir up the mob cause chaos and really you're just getting more power for yourself okay yeah a trump yeah yeah okay i got you so we've had some of that going on in rome (laughs) yeah um yeah uh so there spartacus um is at this gladiatorial school in Capua when he starts his revolt. Um, His exact path to getting there is a little bit uncertain. Mm -hmm. The only thing we know for sure, it seems clear that he was a Thracian. So he's from like modern day Bulgaria, basically. Um, Gotcha. At some point he is enslaved and we're not entirely sure how. Um, one source says he was a mercenary soldier and then he deserted his post. And when he got caught, he, uh, was then enslaved and his Mm -hmm. fighting skills were put to use as a gladiator. Um, Appian just says he was a prisoner. Who knows what kind of prisoner? Either way, he's captured by the Roman army somehow and enslaved. Um, according to Plutarch, he was fairly well-educated, uh, mm-hmm. And his wife was also enslaved with him. 
Oh, so um, and it's amazing to me that they got to stay together, honestly. Um, But then he's he's trained at the gladiator school in Capua um, in southern Italy. Um, We think he might have been a mermillo, which is one of the more heavyweight um, gladiatorial types. He would have they fought with like a tall rectangular shield and a gladius, which is the Roman short sword. Gotcha. Um, and this this is the type that replaced the Gaul type when Gauls became more integrated into Roman society. Um, he might okay. have also been a Thrakes, which would make sense because that means Thracian. Um, and that's mm-hmm. where he's from. Uh, the Thrakes was armed more or less like we see Spartacus armed in the movie in his one fight. Very small mm-hmm. shield um, and a short blade, except that um, the Thrakes blade was usually curved. And they usually okay. also wore a helmet. Gotcha. Um, so so somewhat more lightly armed uh, gladiator type. He was probably one of those two. Um, okay. But then he is part of a group, one of the leaders of this group of enslaved gladiators that escape the school in 73. They literally raid the kitchen. They grab cleavers and kitchen knives and fight their way out of the school. There's about 70 of them. Oh, okay. And once they're out on the road, they meet with some wagons carrying weapons and supplies to the school. They plunder those mm-hmm. for supplies. And they take up a defensible position on Mount Vesuvius. And up there, they elect their three leaders, Spartacus, uh, Crixus, who we see in the movie, and a guy named Oinamaus. So these are the three like generals of the, um, of the revolt. The Roman army commander that was sent to deal with them thinks that this should be very easy, right? Gladiators, Mm -hmm. especially enslaved gladiators, are just so looked down upon, right? Mm -hmm. As like the lowest of the low in society. So, of course, he's very arrogant about this. Um, the, The commander cuts off the one good route up and down the mountain to trap them up there. But they go down the other side. They use vines and tree branches to, like, build ladders, climb, basically repel their way down the steep side of the mountain (laughs) Mm -hmm. and get away. (laughs) Okay. And at this point, they start uh, riding around southern Italy, uh, forcibly freeing rural slaves Mm -hmm. uh, who, who join in their cause. Lots of herdsmen, lots of shepherds. Um, so this is like a two year period of rebellion while they, um, they bop around Southern Italy, uh, liberating people, liberating supplies and animals, mm-hmm. food and things like that. Um, and continuing to defeat the Roman forces that come at them. Um, more and more people living in poverty and in slavery join them. Um, they do steer clear of cities, partly because they have this idea, which, probably is not totally wrong that urban Mm -hmm. slaves aren't going to be up for the task of what this rebellion is going to take and might be less willing to give up what little comforts they have for to rough it out in the countryside and go to battle against trained Roman legions. Mm -hmm. They probably weren't entirely wrong about that. Um, So they steer clear of the cities and they focus on the countryside. Um, and there's sort of different ideas about uh, what they were after at this point. 
Um, there are some sources that think Spartacus wanted to escape over the Alps, and they did start heading north at one point. And then for some mm-hmm. reason, they turned back south, and we're not sure why. Um, there's other ideas that Spartacus advocated for, um, that he was the one who advocated for getting to a port and taking ships off to their various homelands where they came mm-hmm. from. Um, and that he was sort of shot down by the other generals and the majority who just wanted to basically live the outlaw life uh, and okay. raid and take revenge and just sort of be the masters of their destiny, so to speak. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, a little unclear on what they were after at this point. And it does seem like there were, there were disagreements amongst them, which makes sense because over this two year period, they amassed a group of like 70,000 people. What the fuck? I know. That's, that's way more than I would have guessed. It's insane. Gathering that many people in two years. Fuck almighty. It's just wild. And it turns out also that Spartacus is a pretty brilliant tactician and Mm -hmm. uh, like a military leader. This is part of why people think he must have had some sort of military experience before he was enslaved. Um, Because Rome sends a few praetors with, you know, one or two legions against Spartacus and the other. um, And they all they defeat the professional soldiers easily every time. Um, So this is really embarrassing for rome right they Mm -hmm. hate that they even have to call this a war because it's right right for them this is a slave revolt they ought to be able to put it down easily they think Mm -hmm. um and so this is just really humiliating um but the official forces that they can send are very limited because rome is also fighting multiple wars on the provincial frontiers right now Mm -hmm. so there aren't as many legions stationed in italy as there might have been um so they end up sending this guy named Crassus against Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Now, Crassus is known as the wealthiest man in Rome. Uh, he is also the most forgettable member of the first triumvirate, <laughs> which will be formed about 10 or 12 years after this. It's Crassus and Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. And it's basically Pompey and Julius Caesar, the two great military leaders, and Crassus's money holding them together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the three of them run the town. Yeah, um, a couple and generals and Jeff Bezos. Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Crassus is a real piece of work. Um, his money did not come from good places. He uh, He's basically like an evil real estate mogul. Um, he had okay. fire. He had a fire brigade that would, when a burning, when a building was burning, they would show up. And they would just stand there while Crassus bargained with the owner. He would offer to buy the property at this just like insultingly low price. Mm -hmm. If the owner agreed, the brigade would put out the fire. If the owner refused, they would just stand there and let the building burn to the ground. God. And he did this all over town. There were were tons of fires in Rome all the time. He Mm -hmm. would buy burnt out or collapsed buildings for pennies, you know, because that's all they were worth, and use slave labor to rebuild them. And what so he just... Asshole. Yeah. And he was just just unfathomably wealthy because of mm-hmm. this. <laughs> so, yeah. 
So that's that's who Crassus is. That's who they've sent against Spartacus. Uh, he's put in charge of about 40,000 soldiers, eight legions. Um, he becomes God. known for extremely harsh discipline of his troops. Um, mm-hmm. Spartacus and Crassus go at it in several battles, and Crassus is unfortunately also a decent general, and um, gradually he pushes Spartacus's forces further and further south until they're at the Strait of Messina, which is that little strip of water between the toe of the boot of mainland Italy mm-hmm. and Sicily. Gotcha. So they're all the way down at the toe, um, a town called Regium. Um, and what happens next sort of varies depending on which source you read. Um, mm-hmm. Plutarch says that Spartacus has made a deal with the Cilician pirates to take him and a, a portion of his force across the strait to Sicily so that they can incite a slave revolt on Sicily and get some reinforcements mm-hmm. because they're, they're clearly um, things aren't, things aren't really going their way at this moment. Um, others say that uh, the rebels were trying to build rafts across um, and Crassus mm-hmm. somehow manages to stop that from happening. Either way, if there was a deal with the pirates, it falls through. Um, gotcha. And some of the sources say that the pirates took the money and then didn't do what they said they would do um, for Spartacus. Pirates. I know. I know. So so either way, uh, Crassus's forces have built up fortifications at the town of Regium. Um, so, and the rebels don't have boats off the end of the toe of Italy. So they're trapped mm-hmm. there uh, and besieged. Um, and it is at this moment that Pompey the Great gets back in Italy. He's been fucking shit up in Hispania. Pompey <laughs> uh, has a bit of a reputation and loves gaining glory for himself. And Crassus is afraid that Pompey is going to come swoop in and get all the credit for mm-hmm. ending the slave revolt. Mm-hmm. Spartacus is also nervous because Pompey has a hell of a reputation for fucking shit up and destroying people. <laughs> and he doesn't really want to face Pompey in battle, understandably. So mm-hmm. Spartacus actually tries to barter a peace with Crassus. But Crassus refuses. And so at this point, Spartacus's forces break through the fortifications and they head to Brindusium, which is on the other side of the peninsula in the heel of the boot. So they're going from okay. the toe to the heel. Um, at this point, things start to get kind of chaotic. The legions manage to separate some of the rebel forces from each other. Mm. And at this point, you know, they've lost whatever advantage in numbers they may have had. Discipline starts to break down among Spartacus's mm-hmm. forces. So Spartacus turns and makes one big last stand. And it's here that the vast majority of his forces are killed on the battlefield. Um, it is presumed that Spartacus also died in battle. Uh, okay. But Appian says his body was never found. His body was never identified. Gotcha. So, um, but he probably died. I mean, he was he was a general... And like, mm-hmm. this is what an honorable general does. He wants to die in battle. So right. that's probably what happened. Um, there were 6,000 survivors um, from amongst the uprising. And all 6,000 were crucified along the Appian Way, which is the main road through southern Italy. So 
between Capua and Rome, these 6,000 crucified rebels lined the road all the way up. Woof. Yeah. Um, sort, yeah. Sort of a puzzling choice for me. I'm One, in its brutality, but two, uh, your main road's gonna stink. Yeah. Seems... Seems like a bad sort of marketing choice. It does. You know, I mean, I'm sure it was like making an example out of them, basically. And oh, like sure, a terrible yeah. warning, right, to all the slaves in mm-hmm. southern Italy who hadn't been liberated or who hadn't had been considering joining Spartacus. Right. But it is a little bit of a um, just a like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when it's inv- time to clean all that up? <laughs> yeah. You've invented a new problem. Yes. <laughs> Which is now someone has to go through and deal with 6,000 people who have been crucified and been sitting out in the Italian sun for weeks? Yeah. Months? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows how long? You know those people weren't paid enough. Absolutely not. Um, so that's the end of Spartacus's story. It's pretty bleak. Um, mm-hmm. much to Crassus's chagrin, he and Pompey get joint credit <laughs> for putting down oh. the rebellion. <laughs> and the two of them serve as consuls the following year. This, th- their success, um, helps them both to be elected to consul. Um, gotcha. and then, yeah, their, the- their rocky relationship goes on from there. <laughs> oh, fun. Now, the movie makes mention of a third general, Lucullus? Yes, he also existed. Um, okay. And in, in Plutarch's Life of Crassus, um, he says that Crassus asked the Senate to please get in touch with Pompey in Spain, get in touch with Lucullus, who I believe was in Gaul at the time, and bring them home to help him out. And then by mm-hmm. the time they get there, he has regretted that choice. <laughs> Because he wants, gotcha. to, he's decided he actually wants the credit all by himself. But yeah, they, he did ask Lucullus to come home as well. Um, but Pompey and okay. Crassus are the only ones that really get talked about very much in sources. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I, is it time to talk about the film? I think it's time to talk about this, uh, this epic film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Complete with an yeah. intermission. An intermission and an overture. Yeah. <laughs> a, like, four and a half minute long overture. He, yeah. Our man Stanley went for it. Yes. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, talented talented filmmaker, not very respectful of your time. Not at all. No. No. <laughs> no. <clears throat> so, so how, how was, uh, how was Spartacus for you? So, first of all, this cast is fucking amazing. Uh, it is stacked. Kirk Douglas, our Lord and Savior, Sir Lawrence Olivier, mm-hmm. Tony Curtis, Gene Simmons. It's just like, it's out of this world. Uh, and I was worried about the length. And amazingly, for the first two and a half hours, I was really engaged. And I felt like it was really well done. And like the pace, it was sedate, but not too sedate. Like the story Mm -hmm. kept moving. We had these lovely human interest interludes. And I was 
fully engaged. And I was like, this movie rocks. And we had the I'm Spartacus scene and it was incredible. And after the I'm Spartacus scene, the last half hour, 40 minutes of this movie was like watching paint dry. It's so dry. So it's so slow. slow. I just, it was excruciating. So I, this is why I have mixed feelings about the movie, because I really do think mm-hmm. it's very well done. And the majority of the movie I loved. If they had stopped it after I'm Spartacus, would have been Whoa. pitch perfect. Yeah, would have been an all-time classic. And yes. then <laughs> fucking Stanley here Stupid is like, Stanley. Hey, what if we meander around with some of the most grating people on the planet <laughs> for another uh, 40 minutes? Apparently, and just... <laughs> we needed, like, the most excruciating, gut-wrenching, slow death of the bromance with Antoninus and then the death of Spartacus. Yes. And the misery and it's just of like, his wife. It's like, come on. <laughs> it's it's funny because, I, like you're saying, it's... It's not like a fast-paced movie. It couldn't be at this runtime. Yeah. But it, it, the the gears of the plot, they're moving. They're moving not quickly, but they are going. And then you get to the last half minute and Stanley jams a fucking wrench in there. <laughs> and it grinds to a halt. And he says, deal with it. <laughs> fucking live with this decision that I've made. And uh. it, it is... Because it's funny, because um, yesterday was, like, kind of the perfect day to, to watch, like, a long movie. It was um, rainy. It's kind of dark. Getting colder here, finally. Mm. Um, I had a terrible crick in my neck, so there wasn't a whole lot I wanted to do. And so I started watching it, and I was like, you know, I'll probably do this in, like, three chunks. I'll do an hour now. I'll do an hour in the afternoon. I'll do an hour at dinner. Sure. Uh, and so I started it and every time I started to think like, okay, I should probably pause it and move on to something else. Something would happen and I'd be like, okay, hold on now. Mm. And it would draw me back in. And then again, there'd be a point where I was like, okay, it, we hit intermission. This is probably a good time to stop. And so, uh, you know, get through intermission and then something happens and I'm like, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sit through this. I'll watch this. Uh, and then I start getting a little restless, so I hop on the treadmill for a little bit, and it it hooks me back in. And so I end up staying on the treadmill way longer than I intended to. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, and, and then it's like, well, there's like 40 minutes left in this movie, so like, what's the point in pausing it? And then, and then it's like <laughs> this fucking slog through this swamp made of cement. And it's just, it's so difficult, but you're, you're, you're in it, you know, you've put this much time in, you can't pause it and save it for later. You just want it to be over. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) With all the pausing that I did, this took four hours. Oh God. (laughs) Cause, cause I looked at our, um, our message history and I saw when I told you that I started the movie and when I told you I was done, it was four hours. Jesus. That's too much of your life to give to one I know. movie. I know. It's it's a lot. You're asking way too much, Stanley. Yeah. Um yeah. But no, it like it's not bad. Yeah, uh, it's I, really not. 
not. I did also learn something. Oh, hooray. Okay, so um, there's a scene early on where the guy who runs the gladiator school, I think. I kind of forget who it was, but I think it was him. Comes into his house and, like, kisses his hand and touches the altar that's, like, just inside his door. Mm. And I thought this was very curious because, I don't know if you know this, that's also what you do with the mezuzah. I did not know that. That is the exact same thing you do, is you're supposed to, like, I, like kiss your hand and touch your mezuzah. Or touch it and kiss it. I don't, I don't remember but, like, that's a thing. And so it's like, these are too similar uh, for this to be just, like, a coincidence. Yeah. And so I looked it up. Um, and the first uh, record of someone doing this in the Talmud is a Roman convert. Holy shit. And his name is Onkelos, Onkelos the son of uh, Colonymus. That's amazing. And I was like, hot fucking damn. I mean, I am by no means an expert on any of this shit, but I surely it has to be that this Roman convert was like, oh, y'all do this mezuzah thing? Well, I'll just, like, kiss it. Yeah, yeah. That's so fucking cool. That's incredible. That's oh, so cool. That is so awesome. This is, yeah, this is why people, you can't have your religions in a silo. You gotta understand... No. We all pull from each other. Well, and it's it's so fascinating to me that, like, that tradition has lived on for so fucking long. Yes. Because, um, like, people still do it. I occasionally do it. And it's just, like, knowing the origin of that just makes it, like, fucking mind-blowing. That's incredible. Because, like, was that a, a Roman thing? Or did that start with the Greeks, do you happen to know? I don't happen to know. I do know, though, that um, acknowledgement and small offerings to household gods was something you were supposed to do mm -hmm. basically every day. So if this is like this is perhaps his his, you know, brief acknowledgement or maybe it's, it's like supposed to be some sort of abbreviated prayer um, mm -hmm. to his household gods as he walks in the door. Um you are supposed to greet them. So I think okay. maybe that's where it came from. Maybe. I don't know. Scholars Fucking of religion, cool either way, please uh, tell me yeah. <laughs> if I'm wrong there. But yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Greaselightningpod awesome. at gmail.com if you have any insight into this. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so, so there were a few things at the beginning of the movie that struck me as interesting. Okay. First, pagan tyranny. Oh, my God. Fucking God. That whole little intro was just like the most 1960 thing ever. It was, except there was, there was a line where he was talking about, uh, where the narrator was talking about slavery mm. and um, how bad it was and everything. And Sarah, I don't know if you felt the same way, but listening to that, I was like, now, in 2023, that is sadly kind of kind of a progressive thing to say, and distinctly anti-Floridian. <laughs> You're so right. Oh, God. 
And what a what a damning statement about how we've come along as a society that Truly. in uh, 60 years, we've gone from everyone can agree slavery's bad to nope, we can't teach that. Yeah, it's not a good look. Progress. <laughs> or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um... I did. I did like uh, Kirk Douglas uh, just going to town on that Roman soldier's ankle like it was a fucking ham hock. That was incredible. I recently watched Dracula, and so when he started mm-hmm. biting the Roman guy, the guard's <laughs> ankle, it was like, "Is this? Am I watching the wrong movie?" <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird thing to have in this movie that he's just like a, a honest to god ankle biter. Yes. <laughs> It's like, I don't know why we needed this, but I did. Yeah. I also just it does love, like, something. It would, it would absolutely be incredibly painful if somebody did that to you, oh, right? Oh, God. But the guard laying on the ground yelling, my ankle, my ankle, is just like, I could not take him seriously. <laughs> it's so good. Um, I do, I also really liked him talking about, like, He's, uh, the, the gladiator school guy is walking around checking out which slaves he wants to get. And there's a guy who's a gall and he's like, ugh, much too hairy. And it's like, I'm sorry, <laughs> have you seen Mediterranean peoples? Yes. <laughs> because I gotta tell you, I don't think you've got a fucking leg to stand on here. Yeah, seriously. Also, uh, like, hair removal was a thing. In antiquity. Was it? Like, if you wanted... It, it wasn't pretty, but it was mm-hmm. possible. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't want a hairy man, you could do something about that. So, okay. I, I'm i going to take this in a bit of a blue direction. But okay. it is out of genuine interest. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, uh, you know, went to uh, grad school for public health. And one of the first things... Uh, that I like talked about in one of our discussions because we had this assignment where it was like find an article about something in public health and like write it up, whatever. And I found this very interesting article about pubic grooming hmm. and how um, a lot of women, young women in the United States, uh, feel a particular pressure to uh, shave their pubes because they feel that it's like dirty. And they feel particular pressure to do this before going to, uh, like, a gynecologist. Hmm. Um, which is kind of wild, because it serves a purpose. And, uh, like, shaving everything off actually, like, increases your likelihood of, like, infre- infections and chafing and, and all of that stuff. Okay. Because it's there for a reason. Yeah. And the gynecologists are like, you really don't have to shave this off. Like, it's fine for you to have pubic hair. Um. And McKenna and I have also started watching Naked Attraction, a dating show oh. uh, from the UK where um, you're, there's a chooser and there are uh, uh, options, I guess. And so it's, it's six people who are in um, like little contained like rectangle booths, basically. Okay. And they are stark naked. And so over the course of like each round, more of their bodies are revealed. Holy shit. And nothing is censored. It's a, it's 
honestly like a, a weirdly upbeat and positive show that I I love huh. and recommend to everyone. Um, but we've noticed watching this, like no one has pubic hair, men or women. Interesting. Basically, everyone shaves it off, and so I'm curious. Did did ancient peoples did they go uh, scorched earth down there? Some upper class Romans did. And this is something that, uh, like, the Roman satirists talk about Mm -hmm. because they see it as a mark of, like, low morality because you only do that if you're, like, sex-crazed or something. Mm -hmm. So for women especially, removing pubic hair is seen as, like, well, only loose women would do that kind of mm. thing, right? Um, ah, I see you're a harlot. Exactly. Okay. Uh, although, you know, you gotta, I think you gotta give extra respect to women in antiquity who removed pubic hair for whatever reason, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you think it's painful now. The One of yeah. the b- best options you had back then was singeing it off. So you could just, like... <laughs> burn yourself horribly if you were doing it wrong or somebody unskilled was doing this to you Mm -hmm. um the the chances of things going wrong were high so yeah wait so was that like those girls (laughs) so i mean did they have people who were basically like estheticians whose like job was to professionally burn pubes yeah this is a thing that you could have done at the baths Okay. You could also, I mean, some wealthy Romans, if they had like a, a particular uh, household slave who who did mm-hmm. things like, um, you know, various sorts of toilet at home, um, then mm-hmm. you could also just have it done at home. Gotcha. Oh, uh, Marcus, what do you do? I'm a pube burner. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and importantly, not a labia burner. Yeah. So in pretty high demand over here. <laughs> That's fucking wild and t- terrifying because already the concept of it, it to have a sharp blade near your genitals mm-hmm. seems horrifying to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, a fire next to your genitals, even worse. Even worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I will say uh, this this movie also taught me something else. Okay. Which is uh, the five most concerning words to hear from your sexual partner. Oh, boy. I've never had a woman. (laughs) And said in the most, like, awkwardly hungry tone of voice. Yeah. And (laughs) it's telling you so much at once. Yeah. (laughs) It really is. It's like, well, I'm not going to have fun. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's for damn sure and two yeah. the that he says had yeah tells you a lot about how he's gonna view me as a partner exactly so uh so uh, d- folks if you, if you ever <laughs> have a partner who says this to you run <laughs> true definitely run even kirk douglas can't tempt you with that Mm-mm. line. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, w- uh, 
What other thoughts do you have? Uh, so I thought it was pretty funny that um, after they've broken out of the, the school, they mm-hmm. have done a little bit of raiding around the countryside and they've brought back some uh, some wealthy Romans and they're forcing them to fight in the arena mm-hmm. at the school, um, mm-hmm. which I, I just absolutely loved that because we know that gladiator fights were done by the lowest of the low appearing in the arena was deeply shameful and so for some periods of roman history uh, a free person uh, other than like a a freed gladiator who chose to continue fighting that was a different story but a Mm -hmm. freed person of a certain social rank uh was legally banned from competing in the arena like that so this is like the ultimate shame that the former gladiators are imposing on like the class of people who were their former masters uh, mm. of like, it's, it's the, they could not have picked a better way to turn the tables in terms of making those guys feel deep shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's, it's an opportunity for Spartacus to be, very like gallant and say that no one should be ever be made to fight to the death. But um, Mm -hmm. it is, it is a great example of like something that they might've actually been tempted to do in, in turning the tables that way on wealthy Romans. So that was just fantastic. Um, I, uh, I think the, the scene where Tony Curtis uh, who plays Antoninus is attending Laurence Olivier in the bath. And oh, you mean a nude, wet Laurence? Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. I do. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> so, We're about to get horny on yeah. me again. <laughs> we might be. Um, but he's he's asking Tony Curtis all these questions about, do you like this? Do you like that? Um, yeah. And I decided that it, he's like asked, do you like oysters? Do you like snails? He he. Tony Curtis mm-hmm. likes one and not the other. He goes, oh, so it's a matter of preference. And as he's getting out of the bath and putting on his robe, he says, I prefer to eat snails and oysters, which I think mm-hmm. that has to be a come on, right? This is the equivalent oh, of the Schitt's yeah. Creek, do you drink red wine or white wine thing? It's... It is absolutely <laughs> a come on. Yeah. I, like, that's the only way I think you can read it, is he? he's basically like, do you fuck men and women? Yes. <laughs> Uh, because I do, and yeah. I need a piece of you, please. Yeah. <laughs> that scene just, when he's, that line in particular, just mm-hmm. blew me away. <laughs> like, I thought that maybe was where this conversation was going, and then he just mm-hmm. came right out and said it, which is he great. Did. Um, also, really love, really just cannot get over uh the scene where Spartacus is looking over some new recruits and asking like, what do you do? What do you do? And he's finding a place in their uh, military camp for everybody to put their mm-hmm. skills to use. And he gets to Tony Curtis and he goes, what, you know, what, what was your job? And he says, singer of songs. And they look at him like he has three eyes. And they're like, uh-huh. what the fuck kind of job is that? And he goes, I also juggle and I do a bit of magic. <laughs> It's like, get the fuck out of here. I could not stop laughing. <laughs> You're a magician and a clown. Fuck off. What, what did he think 
they were going to let him do. <laughs> like a military uprising. I mean, I, I guess you could make the argument he'd be a decent slinger. Yeah. With I guess the so. juggling talent, but man, I'd rather have the pew burner. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Antoninus, burner of pubes. <laughs> You're here. You're Come on. hired. We've, we've got some logs with your name on them. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and then he shows off his talent as a singer of songs, and bud, that ain't singing. Oh, that's just talking real slow. Yeah, that's like slow jamming. And I it's really, not, it's not good. I really wonder if they had a song for Tony Curtis to sing and it turned out mm-hmm. that Tony Curtis is tone deaf and they just like, they had to cut it <laughs> off and be like, this is not going to work. Please yeah. just chant. <laughs> hey, Tony, can you slow jam? Is that a thing you can do? Cause you sure shit can't sing. So how are you at slow jamming? Um, yeah, I, so, I did doze during the movie at one point, which is why I got on the treadmill, because I was like, I'm getting too sleepy, I gotta, I gotta jostle myself. Um, things, when I woke up, things were not going particularly well uh, for Spartacus and his merry band. Oh, no. Um, and then, and then we got to the battle where... Sarah, they ran over real actors with burning logs. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can do that. I really don't understand how that worked. I uh, I think if you asked the people who got run over, they would say it didn't. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, like, first of all, I will say the battle scene is very impressive. Yeah. Um, if for no other reason than the fact that it's all real people. Yeah. And, like, the fact that they assembled that many people and got them equipped and got them to do marching band stuff, like, that's all genuinely impressive to me. Because now, like, it, hell, even for a long time, like, with uh, Lord of the Rings, you'll get, like, one or two lines of, like, real people and then everything else is, is computer generated. Mm. So it's, it's, it's impactful seeing that many people. Yeah. And it really put, puts you in, like, kind of the mindset of what this looked like. Um, and then they, they run over them with burning logs. <laughs> and cause you see the logs going towards the Roman soldiers and you're like, okay, cool, whatever. Surely they'll cut and they don't cut. And then the Romans stop running and you go, surely they're going to stop at some point. And then you see a flaming log roll over two real live humans. Yeah. Who clearly <laughs> react to it. And you go, what the fuck? Yeah, those are real screams. (laughs) Yeah, oh my god. And then they leave these burning logs and have people stumbling over them. First of all, I'll tell you, not a single puke made it out of there unscathed. (laughs) I can tell you that. But the other is like, the 1960s were a hell of a drug. Yeah. Like, I don't know when SAG was formed, but I feel like it was formed in direct response to this. (laughs) It may very well have been, because this was bonkers. I mean, it it was fun in the sense that, like, hey, Romans, you can see that these logs have been lit on fire and now are being rolled towards you. Maybe you want to fucking move. 
<laughs> and well, they didn't. But but I don't yeah. want to see that they didn't necessarily. Like <laughs> it's it's so nuts. Well, and I also love that like they're marching up to these people. They they set these logs on fire. They continue the Romans continue marching towards them, even though it's like clearly these are meant to roll towards us. Yeah. And they don't make a gap. They don't do anything. They just keep marching toward it. And then the guys start running at them uh, with the burning logs. And then the Romans are like, fuck, never saw this coming. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How could you not? Uh, It's just amazing. Uh, Oh, one other interesting thing. Um, In the the first, uh, the first and only gladiator fight that Spartacus takes part in mm-hmm. in this movie yes um the the guy he's fighting against is armed as a retiarius which is a real type um it was one of the uh more lowly gladiator types that fought with a mm-hmm. trident and a net mm-hmm. uh and usually this was paired with a pretty heavily armed uh gladiator um so mm. very unfair fight um and that person was called a secutor, which just means pursuer. So it was a really heavily oh. armed person who would basically chase around this guy with a fishing net and a trident mm-hmm. for however long it took. <laughs> um, and that's not what they deck out Kirk Douglas in to fight. Yeah. Right? They give him something that's like, he sort of seems to be a cross between a couple of different types. Uh, mm-hmm. I think... I think what they are going for in the movie is the Thracian type, the Thrakes, because mm-hmm. that's where Spartacus is from, with the little bitty shield and the short sword. Um, but the Thrakes also had a helmet, uh, as mm-hmm. we said earlier. And then this this type also sort of resembles um, another gladiator type that we know existed, but we don't have any like artistic depictions of it, called mm-hmm. a welace, which means a skirmisher. And this was somebody okay. with a, a small shield and a short sword, but they also usually had a spear mm. that they could run around with. So I think they're sort of like mixing gladiator types, uh, probably in order to give Kirk Douglas his best angles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Physically. Um, so... You, you mentioned that they have a small shield, and I really want to communicate this because it's comically small. It yeah. is, honestly, I think more accurate to call it a big button. <laughs> Truly. It's, like, no, almost barely bigger than his fist. Yeah, it, and it serves no discernible purpose at that size. No. It, and it, the, whole, the whole fight is kind of funny because it's these two incredibly horny wealthy Roman women who are like, can they fight with their dicks out? Yeah. And uh, and the guy is like, I can get you pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> how about how about basically a diaper that's very padded in the front? Yeah. <laughs> to make everyone look, you know, better. <laughs> and and I guess they're like, fine. I, d- I do love that um, f- from basically that scene, we learn that uh, Romans are just like us in that their rich were also deeply insufferable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, ah, uh, yeah, the rich are always the worst. Yeah. Yeah, truly. 
Um, yeah, so I will say, like, towards the end of the movie, I also lost the plot with a lot of the political stuff. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's, if it's something on me or if it just, like, gets very hard to follow. I also had a really hard time following it. Um, and I think to some extent, I mean, I think there is a scene where Crassus is sort of bargaining for the consulship and he, he was consul Mm -hmm. the year after this revolt, um, Mm -hmm. it was put down. And so there probably was some like backroom dealing to get him that position. Uh, but Otherwise, I, I do feel like a lot of the political machinations were partly created to fit the other tweaks they had made to the story, um, especially mm-hmm. because they wanted Verinia to be this like object of lust for multiple people um, mm-hmm. and sort of like show Crassus's weakness. Um, it seems like a lot of the political stuff um, was sort of built up to... Um, basically just add to his jealousy of Spartacus in yeah. that way. I I also, this is partly an excuse because I also did not follow some of the political <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so this it's is my explanation. <laughs> so um, was Julius Caesar like a, like a senator and like at least tangentially involved in all this stuff? He was uh, around. He was around at this time, but um, there's no evidence that he was actually um, like fighting on the Roman side in this war. Uh, mm. Julius Caesar was definitely involved in the Mithridatic Wars, which happened a couple of years before this. But in around 73, which is when this all started, Julius Caesar was elected to um, a college of priests. He had a, a relative who had been a priest and that mm-hmm. guy died. And so JC was brought in to like fill his position. Um, and then mm-hmm. in 71, he was a military tribune, um, which is another office. And so he was around and he was involved in public life and involved in the military. But there's no evidence that he was like directly involved with anything that had to do with this war. So I think they mostly gotcha. had him in there for color. Okay. Um, and then I I have a question okay. that is not really related to the movie at all. Mm. Um, do you think it is too crass to engage in a little game of fuck Mary kill? <laughs> when you messaged me yesterday, I wondered if this is where we were going. Uh, it is so precisely where we're going. I I think now we have to. <laughs> Okay, so Sarah, fuck, Mary, kill, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Kirk Douglas, and Cary Grant. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sir Lawrence Olivier, Kirk Douglas, Cary Grant. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Cary Grant was a hottie with a body. But he also did a lot of LSD, and I don't mm-hmm. know if I would want to put up with that. So I think Cary mm-hmm. Grant, we fuck. Okay. Uh, Lawrence Olivier, also extremely fuckable, and mm-hmm. had a peerage. So I I don't know what that is. 
Uh, he's a sir. He's Sir Laurence Olivier. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think Mary Laurence Olivier. And- so only killing Kirk Douglas by process of elimination, not because mm-hmm. of any hard feelings. Right. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that's how that one goes. I think that's fair. I mean, that sounds like a, a solid ranking. <laughs> Uh, because yeah, I, especially you want to marry Sir Lawrence Olivier, both, you know, because he's knighted, but also because that's a lifetime, lifetime of fucking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's what you want. (laughs) And see, I would kill Kirk Douglas because didn't do it for me. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. A little, little leathery for my liking. I apparently (laughs) like... A softer man. <laughs> Apparently you do. Well, here's a question. Do you like, uh, maybe this gets at that. Do you like Michael Douglas more than you like Kirk Douglas? Um, somewhat. Okay. Yeah. It, like in terms of attraction? Yeah. See, I only really know old Michael Douglas. Mm. I don't necessarily know young Michael Douglas. I mean, I could look it up real okay. quick, and I probably should. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm thinking like Michael Douglas in his Fatal Attraction era. Okay, let me look up Fatal Attraction. Uh, Michael Douglas. Let's see what we got here. And I think that actually puts him at about the same age as Kirk was in this movie. Hachi machi. Yeah, that's a that's a good looking man. <laughs> Um, yeah, 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 I I prefer him over Kirk, because Kirk looks like he was left out in the sun too long. (laughs) He really does. (laughs) And I don't, I don't like that look. It's it's wild, too, because, like, I didn't think Russians really tanned that well. Um, Kirk Douglas is a child of Belarusian immigrants. Yeah, no, because I was looking it up, because I was trying to figure out, like, how do I know Kirk Douglas? mm. Um... Because I kept confusing him with Kurt Russell, who's oh. very different. <laughs> very different. And I was shocked to learn that uh, Kirk Douglas is nowhere near his original name. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, what a what a tanned Russian. <laughs> it's just wild. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> so, uh, should we uh, rate this movie? I think we should, yeah. Um, okay. I think I'm gonna give this four out of five. Tiny, tiny shields. Mm, okay, okay. I think I'm going to give this six and a half out of eight cohorts being run over by flaming logs. <laughs> That is perfect. Yes. <laughs> um, and then let's see what we'll be watching next time. Uh, should have pulled. We're watching Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. I assume the the new one. Yep. Okay. I'm very curious about this. <laughs> um. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, folks, until then, thanks for listening to Grease Lightning. You can find us on Facebook at Grease Lightning Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Grease Lightning Pod. You can find us on Twitter or X or whatever the fuck you want to call it. 
uh, at Greased Light Pod, uh, I think, or it's Greased Light. I always get it wrong. We're also on um, uh, Blue Sky at Greased Lightning. And uh, like I said before, you can send us an email at greaselightningpod at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, thank you to Luke Patrick for editing this show, and we'll catch you next time.